Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeff Claney. I'm the director of outreach here at the Crossroads campus of Charter Oak Church. And welcome to Advent. As many of you know, this is the time of year that we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas. And over the next four weeks, as Pastor Tom uh, mentioned there, we're going to be focusing on preparing our hearts uh, through this Advent season as we get ready to celebrate Christmas here uh, in, in a couple weeks. But, but you see, here's the thing. The story of Jesus coming to earth does not start in the New Testament or, or the second half of the Bible. Because, you see, the entire Bible, from Genesis at the beginning to Revelation at the end, all tells one story. The story of God's love, mercy, and salvation. And we can find whispers of Christmas on almost every page of the Bible. So, so many of you that have attended church in the past during this time of year are, are used to hearing the traditional Advent stories. Those parts of the Bible that, that talk about the angel visiting Mary and the, the angel visiting Joseph and, and Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, of the long donkey ride, right? Those familiar places that we're used to hearing. But as Pastor Tom said, today and throughout this series, we're going to go into those places in the Bible where we will also find whispers of Christmas in unexpected places, and today, we're going to see that the Christmas story does not begin in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem, but it begins in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it begins in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And specifically, we're going to be talking about Genesis chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 15. Now, I'm not going to read all of these uh, verses right now, but let me just paraphrase where we are and, and where this story begins. And then we're going to dive into some of the specific verses and parts of the story through the rest of our message here today. So Genesis chapter 3 picks up the creation story after God had created Adam and Eve, the first people. You see, God had just finished creating his perfect world full of beauty and peace and wonder. The type of beauty I think you get when, when you see a sunrise or a sunset, or when you look out across a beautiful field of spring flowers, the type of beauty we see in the fall leaves that we just saw here a couple weeks ago, and some may say the beauty of a new, of a new fallen snow that we're going to be experiencing here probably not too long down the road. And, and the peace that you can witness when you see a newborn baby just cuddling up and sleeping. But see, this is also the part of the creation story after God had left Adam and Eve with a very simple instruction. We find this back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God tells Adam that he can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. It's been known to be called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis chapter 3 is the first time we encounter Satan, the devil, in the form of a serpent. But it's also the first time that we get a glimmer of the true gospel message of the entire Bible. The first time we start to see the importance of what God really did that first Christmas and why. Clear back in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible at the beginning of creation. Now, as we step deeper into this, I, I want you to think of the Bible as kind of a two-act play. And if you come to a two-act play and you come for only the second half, you're really not going to understand who the characters truly are. 
you're not going to understand the plot and maybe why things are happening the way they are or why characters are interacting with each other the way they do. Well, the Bible story can be the same way. If we just pick up the Bible at the traditional Christmas part, at the beginning of the New Testament, we truly can't grasp the meaning of Christmas and what God did. So that's why it's so important to read the entirety of Scripture, the entire Bible, to truly understand what God did that first Christmas. And as we start to get a glimpse of in chapter 3 in Genesis, we start to see the story of the Bible is not so much a mystery, but a battle between good and evil. The Apostle John writes about this in one of his letters. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And, and what is the devil's work here on this earth? It's sin. So if the reason Jesus came to earth as that little baby, that very first Christmas, was to destroy the devil's work, which we said is sin, then we need to understand how sin entered this world to truly grasp why God did what he did that first Christmas. And if we go again back to the very beginning of the Bible, to, to Genesis chapter 1, we see God lit up the darkness. He filled the emptiness. He started creating because he is the creator of everything. All that is beautiful, all that is delightful, all that is peaceful. And he made Adam and Eve, as I said before, in his image. They were created by our loving and perfect God, and they were in a perfect relationship with God. Everything was perfect. Everything was perfect. And, and when we read Genesis chapter 1 and, and 2 and, and really get into the imagery there, I think we kind of get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. God gave Adam and Eve everything he created for their pleasure and their enjoyment. But, as I said before, he also gave them one simple rule. A rule that was actually very easy to follow as long as they trusted him. But the question at this point of the story is, is would they believe God at his word? Would they trust God's plan for their lives? And in reality, we face these questions every day. And we will continue to face these questions every day of our lives, whether we're followers of Jesus or we're still searching. Will you and I believe God at his word at all times and in all situations? Will you and I trust God's perfect plan no matter what? Or, or will you and I question God at times? But believe what we want to believe and do what we want to do. Those are the questions facing Adam and Eve at this point of our story. Now, as, as we read at the beginning of Genesis 3, all, in all that goodness, the plot starts to change as the serpent appears. Now, now this was not a figment of Adam and Eve's imagination. This, the serpent was real, but not like any other creature in the garden. Now, this can be confusing maybe at times if, if this is the first time you've heard this story or, or you might say, well, wait a minute, where did the serpent come from? Or, or when you hear the word serpent, you think of a snake slithering through the garden. But again, just like I said before, if you think of the Bible as that two-act play, if you stop with the first part of the play, you also won't truly understand who the characters all are and the plot. So as we continue to read the Bible to the end, through the last book of Revelation, we discover that this serpent is a key character in this battle between good and evil. And, and we meet this, this, this serpent, we meet Satan again and again and again throughout the Bible. And if we go to Revelation chapter 12, at the end of the Bible, 
where it talks about the, the end of this battle that's going on. It says, the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. This is the serpent that we first encounter back in Genesis chapter 3 that we're talking about. And, and the goal of this character in the ongoing battle, the whole focus of Satan is to hinder and, if possible, destroy the work of God's kingdom by any means possible. So let, let's get into the meat of the story now, all right? So, so the serpent comes up to Eve, where we are in the story right now, and, and he asks a very simple question. And, and right off the bat, you can see the serpent doesn't launch a frontal attack onto Eve. He doesn't go right for her throat, right? He's more cunning than that. He says to Eve, he says, hey, Eve, he said, he said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? D did you notice right off the bat, Satan starts off with introducing confusion, right? That's not what God said. He didn't say they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. But Eve responds. She says, well, no, God said we may eat fruit from all the trees in the garden, but one. But then she goes on to say, he also said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, now that's not what God said. That, that, that wasn't his one rule that he gave. Eve was close, but not 100%. The serpent begins with confusion, and Eve continues. She fell into the trap of confusion and actually ended up making God's rule stronger than it really was. God never said Adam and Eve could not touch the tree, and he certainly never said if they touched the tree, they would die. Satan was already successful in putting doubt and confusion in Eve's mind. So, so what was the serpent doing here, right? Many times when we read this, we say, well, the certain serpent was tempting Eve to eat the fruit, but that's really not what he was doing. What he was doing is he was getting Eve to distrust God, to doubt God's word that he had spoken, and to question the goodness of God. And, and why is that important for us here today? Well, because Satan has not changed his game plan and his motive through all these years. And any of us can, can sit here and hear God's word. We can read God's word. We, we can feel that we know God's word, but, but Satan will be right there, entering confusion into our minds, tempting you to question God's word to water it down, to take those parts that we really like and hold those nice and close, but, but those ones that kind of make us uncomfortable, eh, we're not going to worry about those, right? He, he, he looks at us and he whispers in, into our mind. He says, is that really what God means when he says that? I mean, that certainly can't be right in this day and age or, or for you in your life. That, that doesn't mean that. And, and as we look deeper into the specific verses in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see what the serpent is saying is, look, God is depriving you of something really awesome. If you're going to be happy or fulfilled, that isn't going to be found within the boundaries that God has unfairly established. That's not what, what a loving God would do, right? Specifically in verse 5, the serpent says to Eve, hey, look, Eve, God knows that when you eat from it, from the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened. And then it goes on in, in verse 6 to say, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. Even though Eve heard what God had said, the serpent made her see the fruit differently. He made her see it that, that it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Satan had changed her perspective. 
Satan appealed to her emotions and her desires. And at this point, the lie of the serpent was far more appealing than the word of God. And so she ate the fruit. Now, if you've heard this story before or heard somebody talk about it before, we tend to really focus on Eve at this point in time, which makes sense, right? I mean, the serpent addresses Eve, and, and Eve is the first one that eats the fruit. But Adam is standing right there. I mean, it's not like he's off somewhere in the garden naming some more of the animals. It's, it's not like he's coming home from work that day and says, oh, my goodness, Eve, wait till I tell you about my day. And she says, huh, wait till I tell you about my day. I was just talking to a serpent, right? No, he, he was right there standing beside her just as God had created them to be in perfect relationship. And if we go back to chapter 2, we see God spoke directly to Adam about his one rule. So even if Eve was confused by, by what God had said to Adam, Adam was right there to discount what the serpent had said, to, to say what God had actually told him to speak God's truth. But what does he do? He also doubts he also loses trust in God, and he eats the fruit as well. He also believed the lie of Satan, the lie that there would be no consequences if they disobeyed God's word. Listen, that lie of Satan has not changed today. It's the same lie today as he told Adam and Eve back in that garden. He, his lie is, look, there are no consequences for living beyond God's boundaries don't believe that, right? Those loving boundaries of God's plan, which, which takes us to the to kind of the hard part of the story today, the part that starts to really hit home for me, because when we read this, it reminds us that there are consequences for our decisions when we choose not to listen to God's word, when we choose not to trust God at his word. At this point of the story, the, the serpent's promise about Adam and Eve's eyes being opened proves to only be about half right. You see, Adam and Eve's eyes are open, but not to the delight of being like God. Instead, to the awareness of their guilt and their shame. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Suddenly, they, they see themselves in a different light. They knew that they were naked. Now, this is another part of the story when I read this, when I've read this in the past. It, it always seems strange to me, right? I mean, that this is the first time Adam and Eve realized they were naked. I mean, they didn't, didn't just suddenly become naked when they ate the fruit, right? It wasn't the first time they looked down and said, oh, I didn't realize I was naked, right? So, so what's the significance of this part of the story? Again, it's perspective. Their perspective has changed because of sin. And the point here is that sin changes everything. So it really wasn't so much that they were physically naked that they were worried about, but now their sinful nature had been exposed. This was now an awareness of their guilt and their shame. They had sinned in rejecting and disobeying the word of God by doing what he had told them not to do, by not trusting God. So at this point of the story, what do Adam and Eve do? They run. Verses 8 and 9 go on to say, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? This scene is very sad to me. In fact, it's, it's somewhat almost unbelievable, right? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves and hid behind trees from God. Leaves 
and trees that God had created for their enjoyment and pleasure. And, and again, why, why did they do this, right? Because, they, because of their shame and their guilt. They're hiding behind leaves and trees because they decided to break a perfect relationship with God, and they were ashamed and afraid. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans when he's recounting the story. He says, they, Adam and Eve, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. At this point, beauty and intimacy with God is replaced with brokenness and isolation. Love and peace has been replaced with shame and fear. And they do gain knowledge as the serpent had promised. They know that there will be consequences for their actions. And this can be us at times. Have you ever felt like Adam and Eve, right, trying to hide and run from God because of shame of something you've done in your life or fear of consequences? But here's the thing. Look back at the end of verse 9. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God is looking for them. God is, is still seeking a relationship with them, and he does the same for you and for me. Why are we so reluctant at times to face God, especially when we've sinned? Because I think we, just like Adam and Eve, are afraid. We're afraid God's going to call us out, that he's going to expose something in our lives that we don't want to have exposed. And, and why was God looking for Adam and Eve? Why does God want us to come to him with our faults and our sins? Because just like it says at the end of verse 9, God is calling out to you. He's calling out to us just like he calls out to Adam and Eve. Where are you? And, and, and here's the thing we go back to the story. Did the fig leaves really hide the sinfulness of Adam and Eve? I don't think so. Did, did the trees and the bushes really hide their shame from God? Can we really hide our brokenness and our faults from God? I mean, God knew everything in the Garden of Eden. Eden, He created it, right? Don't you think he already knew what Adam and Eve did? The reason God is calling for them isn't because he needs them to tell him what they did. He's not seeking information. He's all-knowing. So, so why did God even go looking for them in the first place? Because he is God. It's his nature. He still loved them even though they disobeyed him. And the same is true for us. God will always, always be looking for you. No matter what you've done, because he is God. You know, if, if that wasn't true, there would be no hope for any of us, none, right? If God didn't love the rebel and the sinner, if God didn't always come looking for us, if God didn't call out to us when we are lost and ashamed and broken, where are you? There would be only hopelessness. But he did go looking for Adam and Eve. And he does come looking for us as the expression of his love and his peace and his grace and his mercy. Now, now, don't get me wrong, right? God knows that there will be consequences for our sin. There has to be, and, and he will not remove those consequences, and that's something we can talk about in a whole other message series, right? But he never stops looking for us. He never stops loving us. Now, now getting back to our story, this is the point where God turns to the serpent, and specifically in verses 14 and 15, he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. 
You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is where the battle between good and evil really starts to get drawn. The lines start to get drawn. Here is where the underlying plot of the whole Bible starts to truly unfold. And here, right here, is where we start to hear the first faint whispers of Christmas and why Jesus came to earth. This battle that leads to Christmas can be seen throughout the Old Testament, leading us to that baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, that special baby born of Mary who will crush the head of the serpent. You know, as we move through the Bible and, and transition into the New Testament, we encounter, obviously, Jesus at Christmas, right? Who is sometimes referred to as the second Adam, who, who where the first Adam failed in a garden, triumphed in another garden, as he prepares to sacrifice his life for each and every one of us. Jesus chooses in that garden not to listen to the serpent, Satan. But this time, Jesus listens to God and follows his perfect plan. He goes to the cross, and he triumphs over sin and death when he rises on the third day, and he crushes the head of the serpent. And he did this for each and every one of us here, for each and every one of you online, so that one day we can experience life where there is no sin, there is no sorrow, there is no death, where we can live in that perfect relationship that God meant it to be, in a place of beauty and intimacy and peace. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship in God's family. The story of Christmas is the beginning of God fulfilling one of his promises, but not his first promise. That goes back before the manger. That goes back before the prophets and Moses and Abraham. It goes back even before sin entered this world. And we again find it in Genesis chapter 2, when God says to Adam, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. If you choose to disobey my word, there will be consequences. Not the kind of, of heartwarming promise that we would think of, especially this time of year. You're not going to find that referenced on any Christmas cards these days, right? But as we just heard, this promise has everything to do with Christmas. I mean, the promise proved true for Adam and Eve when they rebelled against God's word. There were consequences. And it's true for all of us when we walk away from God, when we don't trust God, when we sin. Paul writes about this and when he, and he references this in his letter to the Romans. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. This first promise of God, of, of God it hits hard, right? It's tough to hear and, and kind of take it in. I mean, how can a loving God who created us to say this and, and allow this to happen, how can he allow there to be consequences? But... We celebrate Christmas because God then made another promise. Because he is God and he is love and he is perfect. 
and because he so much desires a true relationship with each and every one of us, the second promise was that there would come an heir of Adam and Eve who would deal a fatal blow to Satan, the serpent, a promise that the angel told Joseph when he had learned that Mary was pregnant. The angel comes to Joseph and says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God was calling out of the darkness that day through the angel, calling out to his people then and calling out to us now. Yes, don't get me wrong. There are consequences to our actions when we don't trust God's word, when, when we don't trust his perfect plan for our lives, when we twist his words or for our own sake and our own benefit. There are consequences but Christmas reminds us of hope and God's perfect love. I want to close today looking at a drawing called Mary Consoles Eve. This is done by an artist called, her name is Grace Remington. And to be honest, I didn't even know this, this existed until I was given the notes to prepare for this message today. But this is an amazing picture. I mean, not when you just want to glance over either. There's so much here. I mean, on the surface of the picture, if you look at the whole picture, you see the Bible story. Creation, fall, and redemption as told by two women, Eve and Mary. But the longer you look at this drawing, the more powerful, to me at least, it becomes. Here's what I see. Let's look at Eve on her side of the picture, right? Look at her posture. I see exhaustion. I see her, her weighed down shoulders. Her head is bent. She can't even look up. She's ashamed of herself. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been ashamed of something in your life, something you've done in your past? But, but what hits me the hardest is the fact that she is still clutching the fruit. It, it's like she can't let go. And, and not only is she holding on to it, but she's drawing it close to herself, almost protecting it. I wonder if, she, if she's actually afraid to put it down. Knowing it represents her sin, but she can't let go. It's actually comfortable to her. Can, can you identify with that? Do we ever find ourselves holding on to our sin, clutching our past tight to our chest, knowing that, that we should put it down, but we can't, afraid of it being exposed? Maybe she's even saying to herself, I can handle this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. Is that you? Th then I go to the other side, and I look at Mary. And I notice her posture and her attitude. First, notice this. She, she's not ripping the fruit out of Eve's hand. She's not wagging her finger in, in Eve's face saying, how dare you do what you did? In fact, Mary doesn't even seem troubled or worried or bothered by the fruit. Instead, she's focused on Eve. She's comforting Eve. Look, look at her right hand on Eve's cheek. She's looking Eve in the eye and she's smiling. I mean, Mary, Mary knows what Eve did, right? Mary knows that Eve has broken something very beautiful, but Mary isn't worried because she feels redemption in her body the same way that Eve feels shame in hers. And here's the best part, right? Mary knows that things aren't going to just be simply okay, right? That they are going to be made perfect again. So Mary reaches out to Eve, even as Eve still holds onto that fruit and clutches that fruit. And with the other hand, Mary takes Eve's hand and puts it on her belly. While Eve can't even bring herself to move towards her freedom, Mary reaches out to her. 
While Eve's body is heavy with shame, Mary invites her to touch what is new. It's like Mary is saying, hey, Eve, you are carrying shame in your body, but I am carrying salvation in mine. And, and then notice this, right? Let's, let's move to the bottom of the picture. While, while Mary has focused her, her attention on Eve and comforts her, she is also crushing the head of the serpent. Without even looking down, Mary is stepping on evil and crushing it. But also down there at the bottom, we see that while Eve is, is clutching her sin and Mary is crush, crushing the head of the serpent, Eve is still also being clutched by sin through the tail of the serpent. Eve and listen, evil and sin don't just magically disappear when we accept Jesus. Evil still wraps its way around us. And and why is this important? Because it shows that Eve can't escape sin and evil and death on her own, and neither can we. We can all find ourselves feeling like Eve, clutching our sin, ashamed of our past and our present, or our present. And even, even if we feel like we could let go of our past and our failures, we feel sin wrapping its way around us, holding on to us just like the serpent is wrapped around Eve's leg. But but here's the thing. If we step back and look at the picture again, the best aspect of this picture and God's incredible story that it represents is hope. The hope that God provides Eve through Jesus also gives us a way back to peace and comfort, not just through the birth of a baby that that we're going to celebrate here on Christmas and each Christmas, but, but through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, who put on human skin starting that very first Christmas, coming to earth in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem. Advent is is meant to be a time of reflection and preparation. And, And Advent is a reminder of the story of people who can't get away from their sin, who give in to temptation even after hearing God's word. And we are those people. But Advent is also the promise of God who came to save us, who came looking for us, who calls out to us, where are you, regardless of our sin. Advent is Eve clutching her sin, you and I clutching our sin. And Advent is God bringing Jesus to reform her and reform each and and every one of us anyway. Christmas in the center of Eden, an unexpected place. Let's go to God in prayer. (coughs) Heavenly Father, many times this year we we can get caught up in in the hustle and bustle of of Christmas, of of, um, just trying to, to prepare for all the things that we have on our minds. But I ask... Father God, this Advent season, that that you help us focus on the true preparation that Advent is meant to be, recognizing that that we are not perfect, that we do mess up at times, that that we don't always trust God, you, at his word, at your word, and remembering that, that yes, there, there are consequences, but there is also hope hope that we remember through this this story, through this message, through the entire message of the Bible, that you are a God of love, you are a God of mercy, you are a God of grace, and you want nothing more than to be in a relationship with us. So as we continue to to move towards the celebration of of that day that you brought Jesus down to this earth to save us, to to fulfill your, your most important promise of redemption, just help us to 
to take time and find that peace in our hearts, to let go of what we're holding on to, and to open our arms to receive what you're giving us. Father God, we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.